Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest for this episode is uh, Katie Mosaurus. So, Katie, say hi. Hi, Tony. How's it going? It is going well. Um, like we were just talking about, uh, you know, obviously, obviously things of uh, the world's gone a little crazy since I last saw you at RSA uh, last year. Um, that was actually because it, it was funny. That was, you know, that was the last. Hurrah. That was that was the la- that was the last event before the world melted down because I came back to Houston and I was supposed to go to Austin the following week to just hang out uh, and, and, and meet with some different people. And then everything just went into lockdown. And uh, and I basically didn't didn't leave my house for, you know, five months. Um, and now here we are. Yeah, that was my last trip as well. Um, And that's crazy to think about, you know, end of February 2020 was the last airplane ride, airport, anything um, that I've done. And, you know, now that I'm vaccinated and things are starting to, you know, look a little bit safer, uh, I just booked my you know, my first business trip in, <laughs> in forever, um, that's taking place in a couple of weeks, but I am not going to, uh, be at Black Hat or DEF CON this year, barring a miracle of vaccines approved for the under 12 set, because I have an under 12 year old that I would like to protect from any variants that I might bring right. home that might break through my, my vaccination. A, uh, a real concern. Yeah. Uh, well, and so, so it, uh, ironically, or I mean, not, not ironically, um, but I uh, also just recently booked my first trip since then. So I, uh, you know, for, for my day job, we're having a, you know, we're meeting in Boston. So I'm going to be in Boston at the end of this month. Um, but I just, I just booked that airfare the other day and um, we are all vaccinated. My youngest is, just turned 15. So when they opened up that age range, she was able to get vaccinated um, so, so we are all good now. Um, and I actually was planning on being at black hat, uh, that was, that was on my radar. Um, however, my company decided to pull back because the, it seems like the projected numbers of people attending live in, uh, in Las Vegas are significantly lower than we anticipated. No, that is uh, that's kind of a selling point for a lot of people this year. Um, is that this will be the first time in you know twenty years that this the numbers have been so small. Um, so they're kind of hoping for a more intimate experience in person. But yeah, I just you know having been to DefCon Seven was my first DefCon, so I remember what the numbers were like back then. Uh, you know when when whenever Black Hat started, I never paid my way in. If I had to get in, I could figure out a way to get in. I mean, I am a hacker after all. Um, but I think I remember going to Black Hat officially, probably not until uh, I worked at Microsoft. So like I'd been to Black Hat before then. Anyway, uh, for me, DEF CON is the, is the, you know, my favorite of the, of the two cons that happened in Vegas. Um, of, of the older conferences, of course, B-sides, you know, Las Vegas is a great conference as well. Um, but yeah, I just can't, I just can't imagine putting myself in that situation until, um, until we've got better vaccine uptake by everyone who's eligible. And then also, you know, getting that age limit lowered, that would be great. Well, and I also, yeah, it's like, I started, I started right after I had sort of mentally committed to going, 
is when I started to see stuff in the headlines about this Delta variant, you know, and, and, you know, going crazy in the, in the United Kingdom and, and the United States. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's something to be uh, aware of. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it, you, you talked about the black hat and DEF CON, you know, I, I've, I always said like you have RSA, which was kind of the, that's the, the business side focused. And then black hat was supposed to be more the, you know, practitioner, but then that also kind of matured and morphed into being vendor and business focused. And you had, you know, so you had DEF CON to kind of fill that gap and, and, and be the, the more of the hacker thing. And then, which I think it still is, but I think even DEF CON has matured to some level. And then, and then, and then you have B sides coming in to kind of fill that void again and say, well, no, we need, we need a lower level, not lower level, but we need, we need that, 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 that conference that lets hackers, you know, hack <laughs> and share and share with one another and, and, and not, and not make it just a big vendor pitch. Yeah. And I've liked, you know, I've liked, liked the DEF CON villages, you know, for kind of bringing back that, that um, earlier hacker mentality, but DEF CON is so sprawling at this point that, you know, honestly, you know, the last in-person one that I attended, you know, year before last, it was very much a, um, you know, difficult to find the right villages and be there for the right, you know, right talks or, or activities that were happening um, just because everything's so spread out, you know, and um, I don't know, I, I just uh, I think it'll be it'll be fun when we can all get back there safely, which for me looks like, you know, 2022. But um, I, I think the um, that that uh, community spirit where hands-on hacking occurs, I think it's it's definitely being um, that torch is being carried more by the B-sides conferences than than it can be by some of these larger, older hacking conferences for sure. Yeah. Well, and so I. I... I've only ever like sort of peripheral, like I, I, I've never actually attended DEF CON. I, I've, I've been there like past Black Hat a day or two and, and, and kind of interacted with the DEF CON community, but I've never actually attended DEF CON. Um, but I did hear about, you know, it was like after, after it kind of went from, you know, as, as Black Hat went from Caesar's Palace to Mandalay Bay and uh, DEF CON went from being at the, you know, Rio to being like kind of everywhere. Um, and that, yeah, I, I have experienced that from going to the AWS, um, reinvent conference that they have like around Thanksgiving and AWS books hotels all up and down the strip. So there's a bunch of stuff going on down at like the Venetian, but then there's also stuff going on up at MGM. And even though that's only a couple miles, it's like a, you know, 40 minute bus trip <laughs> through, through Vegas traffic. And so it's, it's a real pain to try to navigate the event. Like, you know, if, if you, if you're trying to get to a session that's at one hotel and then get back to a session at the other hotel, that's the, the, the logistics are challenging. But, yeah. 
For sure. I mean, I feel like, well, one, Vegas was the destination for, you know, the hacker conferences in the first place because it was cheap and, you know, everyone could could get hotel rooms and everything like that. But yeah, if once they are these big sprawling conferences, the transportation, you know, that it takes to get between, you know, wherever you're staying, where you can afford to stay to whatever event you're trying to get to, that really adds up. Um, I don't know if you uh, if you knew that for a few years, a few years in a row, a bunch of hackers actually rented out an entire smaller hotel off of the strip. And, um, you know, it was organized by hackers. It was very much like you, you kind of put your name on a spreadsheet of whether you wanted a single room or a room, you know, shared with another hacker. And, um, and, you know, you, you paid, uh, an amount because they basically secured the entire hotel. I loved the idea of just staying sort of with the hacker fam uh, a little off strip, but my God, was it a huge haul to get back to anything I needed to get back to. So I just remember, you know, I was having uh, a, a small lunch with members of Congress and had to, you know, be dressed appropriately for that. And then I had to go all the way back to my hotel to change because I was competing in drunk hacker history later that night. And it just didn't, you know, it, the whole blazer thing wasn't really, I wasn't feeling it for drunk hacker history. So just to do a costume change, you know, required significant time and effort um, to get between the two conferences, the two audiences, you know what I mean? And yeah. one thing I really loved about the earlier smaller conferences was their, you know, that, that, Everybody was there in jeans and T-shirts, you know, including the feds and, you know, hence the the fun old fashioned DEF CON contest hack uh, spot the fed, you know, was uh, trying to spot I, I, them. I think I have some I'm not a fed stickers around here somewhere. Right. Exactly. It's like, you you know, they they try and, you know, look like hackers by wearing jeans and T-shirts and everything. But you could tell. Right. Like one what the heck are you doing wearing a belt, you know, or like that yep. haircut? Did, did I you don't see buy the it. Day when, uh, <laughs> um, uh, the vice president, when uh, Kamala Harris walked in the pride parade. And so she just, she decided, you know, she and her husband decided they wanted to go actually walk in this pride parade and the secret service detail, you know, had to walk with her. And it was just, it was funny because you see all these pictures of they're dressed like they're trying to sort of blend in. But it's like, okay, but you're still the guy with the, the dark shades and the earpiece. Like, we know who you are. <laughs> right. Even even minus the earpiece situation, you know, um, it, it's you definitely can tell. It's it's like haircuts, shoes, belts, bizarrely, you know, in, installed where no belt should be kind of thing. Uh, you know, all of these different tells. But um, but it is, you know, that's that's one of like the lighthearted things. And of course, if a Fed is uh, there and gets spotted, if they're a good sport, you know, they actually get uh, a T-shirt as well that says, I am the Fed, you know, which is nice. Yeah. I mean, it does make for a fun little a fun little game. Uh, but, you know, penalty. there should be a penalty for falsely accusing someone of being a Fed, though. Like you should get you have to you should have to wear a shirt that said I was wrong or something. <laughs> well, I mean, you may you may only be wrong at that point in time. They could have just retired or, you know, whatever it is. But no, I think it's great that, you know, since the early days where it used to be spot the Fed because they were definitely outsiders and they were definitely potential threats to the hacker community um, trying to infiltrate. Now it's more of like a lighthearted thing because, you know, as you know, 
we've got hacker initiatives all over the U.S. government, um, you know, starting with Hack the Pentagon five years ago, which, you know, was an absolute revolution. Like the U.S. government had never welcomed hackers so openly before that moment. And um, and that's like a testament to how things have changed. Um, things aren't solved and we still have legal threats against us, you know, as a community uh, by you know, a lot of folks, but uh, that was definitely a major turning point between the, you know, relationships that researchers have with the U.S. government. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and kudos to you for your your involvement and in, helping in to kind of drive that, but, um, and create that. Um, so let's talk, you know, obviously, you know, you're, you're very well known uh, for your involvement with, um Disclosure, responsible disclosure, you know, I'm not sure what the term du jour is. Um, it, there, it, there, go ahead. It was, uh, I was going to say, it's coordinated vulnerability disclosure or just vulnerability disclosure. So the whole responsible thing, um, we actually got that removed from the ISO standards on vuln disclosure because, and back in 2010, we got it removed because it's impossible to, uh, standardize what is responsible. And also, um, the ISO standards themselves were referring to what vendors should do for what the, what the receiving end of vulnerability reports should do. And um, so a bunch of those arguments kind of went into the removal of the word responsible from that ISO standard. And then once it was removed from the ISO standard, you know, um, which, you know, I was a co-author and co-editor of the ISO standards, um, I was able to take that back to Microsoft and justify the removal of the word responsible from all of their language um, and replace it with coordinated because coordinated is actually descriptive of what you want. And it's descriptive of working together even when both parties don't agree on the right way to disclose and when to disclose. Um, because for example, you know, I just did a coordinated vuln disclosure with Clubhouse, the, the popular audio app. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was, I basically, one, I had a hard time getting in touch with them. You know, finally I got a person, they tried to refer me to their private bug bounty program under NDA. And I said, nope, not signing any NDAs. I just want this to get fixed, you know, within uh, 45 days or less. And, you know, I'm going to count my attempts to disclose to you as part of that 45 day deadline. Um, so, you know, please, please handle this. And, and, you know, I, I'm available for any questions. And, you know, they kind of came back and forth and, and then they said they fixed it. It didn't look fixed to me. Um, they explained that it was something, you know, it was a caching issue in the display that I was still seeing. So I said, okay, I don't have time to retest this, but I'm going to go ahead and publicly disclose because you said that it was fixed right. and, um, and I'll coordinate, you know, hence the, the adjective, I'll coordinate the disclosure of my research, my experience in, in trying to disclose to you. And I'll even share my blog post ahead of time with you. So that is the, you know, that's the true meaning of the term coordinated vulnerable disclosure because, you know, even though I wasn't sure whether or not they fixed it, I said, well, you know, if you say it's fixed, I'll take your word for it. You should have no problem with me disclosing this publicly. And I will further coordinate with you, you know, and let you see what I'm going to say about you ahead of time so that there are no surprises, right? But that's really the spirit of coordinated vuln disclosure as it should work, even when the parties disagree about the outcome of the disclosure. Right, and that seems fair, and and, and there are also instances. I mean, I, I'm I'm I don't remember the exact uh, vulnerability, but just just in the last few months, uh, I saw one where 
there was a vulnerability. It was disclosed. The the you know or the you know they 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 coordinated with the vendor. They worked on this the the patch, and technically addressed it. But as soon as the patch was released, somebody else tested and said, "Okay, well you 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 patched it, but you fixed a very narrow interpretation of this problem, which still exists on a broader scale in your in your application. Like you need you know the the patch needed to be bigger." Um, yeah, but yeah, what that is, is basically, um, you know, one of the things that my company teaches organizations is that it's not good enough to fix the one vulnerability report that came in, right? Like if you kind of patch that or mitigate that one report, that that's representative of one attack vector. If you don't do the root cause investigation, find out what the true root cause is, look for other instances of the same vulnerability, you know, and same root cause elsewhere, what you're doing is you're releasing an, uh, you know, basically an incomplete fix. And that is exactly uh, what, you know, one of the most common mistakes of organizations when they set up vuln disclosure programs and bug bounty programs is, oh, look, we're fixing these issues really fast. And it's like, no, you're having, you're fixing one vector at a time right. and well, not doing the comprehensive internal investigation. And it's actually costing you more money and time. And it's frustrating researchers who come to you with issues. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's like if, if, if they were doing a safety inspection of an airplane and they find a, a, a bolt that's cracked and say, okay, well, the, this, this bolt is, is bad. Uh, you know, I'm going to replace this bolt, but don't go and look and say, okay, well, wait, maybe there was a problem with all of the bolts, or maybe there's a, maybe we need to understand, well, what happened with this bolt instead of just replacing that one bolt and sending the plane up into the sky. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's a great way to think about it. Um, there was also, so you know, coordinated disclosure doesn't really apply to uh, ransomware groups, <laughs> but, yeah. there, but there was there was an incident that happened just recently uh, with uh, Berkside and and kind of, you know the, the the ransomware group behind the Colonial Pipeline uh, attack, where there was one group, and I don't remember which who they who they were, but there was one company who had already discovered that there was a a flaw in dark side in their, in their, in, in their exploit and was secretly using that to help customers like recover without, without paying the ransom. And then Bitdefender found the same flaw, but shared it publicly. And then there was, you know, so then there was some back and forth uh, in, in the, in the media of kind of finger pointing, about you know, well, was Bitdefender out of line for publicly disclosing it when this other group was using it to secretly help people? And it's like, okay, well, a, we didn't know you. Were, it was secret, <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't know you were doing that. Um, but you know, but b, you know, it, it, you know, is it, you know, what what's the right answer? Like, you know, do, do, if you if you find a flaw in a ransomware uh, attack that you know can be used to let people recover from it. Um, you know, I, 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 on the one hand, I feel like you're sort of obligated to share that information. And on the other hand, like, well, once you do now, the, now the ransomware group knows too. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think for that one, uh, Bitdefender really did uh, a disservice to the world because they could have, you know, done something where they didn't exactly 
go through the technical details, you know, of it or, or, or something where they basically just said, you know, uh, advertised a, you know, a ransomware recovery, but without, you know, specifying their methods and everything, because, um, frankly, you know, the, the only use of that software was for, you know, was for ransomware purposes, right? It's not like withholding a vulnerability in an office product or a Google product or an iPhone, you know, or anything like that. And, and advertising that you could jailbreak iPhones with it or something like that. So it's not, it, you know, their exploit worked against malware. And I think they should have kept that to themselves, you know, um, of exactly what it was that they were using. So, um, yeah, in that case, uh, that that isn't, you know, really a vuln disclosure or exploit disclosure question. It's really a question of, um, you know, tipping off the criminals as to how you can stop their crimes is probably not like the smartest move for the ecosystem. It was a, you know, definitely a market differentiator at that point in time for the researchers, you know, over at Bitdefender wanting to show off their reverse engineering skills and how they could help you. Um, but I do think that that was, it, it, it was misguided in, in its outcome, which is, you know, it just made the attackers stronger. Yeah. Well, like I say, yeah, I, 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 I agree with almost all of that because uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree that, uh, even, even if you say, okay, well, you know, even if you said there was some obligation to share this information with the world and it's like, okay, well, but yeah, but once you do the information's no longer useful. <laughs> like when, once you share this information with the world, now you've also shared it with the ransomware group so that they can fix the problem. And then, and then your solution no longer is, is relevant. Yep, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, this is a difficult time for a lot of organizations because, you know, it's, it's like Wendy Nather's term, uh, security poverty line. Um, a lot of organizations were functioning well below the security poverty line, which means they haven't, they had not invested enough in their cybersecurity hygiene, in their operations, in their practices, um, and they, you know, they really were were caught, um, you know, not just with the typical intrusions that can happen when you, you know, when you have a lot of unpatched systems or you're successful susceptible to phishing attacks that are not easily contained, you know, identified and contained before they cause damage. All of these things, you know, representing an underinvestment in cybersecurity um, practices and hygiene, they're really, you know, a lot of organizations are really caught, um, you know, in this dark place where uh, they've been hit by ransomware, which is simply a, uh, you know, a, a monetized um, manifestation of the same kinds of hacking that could occur before ransomware was popular. Um, but they're kind of caught with a, a lot of alternatives besides paying the ransom to try and get their data back, you know, because they didn't, they didn't have uh, well-tested backups and a recovery process, you know. And, um, you know, I think the criminals are, are really taking advantage of this, you know, wide array of targets and the fact that, you know, business operations can't really very well resume with the planning and the underinvestment that has happened in both security and business continuity. Um, but I do often say to people that the market rewards speed to market, not security speed to market. You know, if we if we had things built in, you know, in proportion to the scale of 
how many users or how much data they are supporting. Well, then when I contacted Clubhouse, they would have already had a security team instead of just having a bug bounty program, right? Like they, they definitely hadn't been making the proportionate investments in cybersecurity um, to match their responsibility to millions of users. Um, and they didn't have, you know, any of the typical excuses that you give to a lot of organizations, which is, oh, you know, they're just a startup. Well, they had a hundred million dollars in the bank last time I checked and they were value, their valuation is like, you know, over a billion, but also, you know, rumors were they were going to be acquired by Twitter by maybe up to four billion dollars, right? So, um, you know, they did they they also um, had a bug bounty program already, which means they were willing to spend money on security, but that's the wrong order of of investment if you're trying to get yourself out of the security poverty line situation. Well, I was going to say, and, and is that even? spending on security or is it spending on the illusion of security? Because I know you and I have talked in the past about, and I, and I know this is, this is an issue you, you, you have spoken about in the past that you have to, you have to have the, the right stuff in place on the back end to deal with the bug bounties that are brought up to you. Like there's no point in like, you know, just starting a bug bounty program for the sake of starting a bug bounty program. Cause now, okay, great. Now I find a flaw in your, in your software, I can report it. Now what? You know, and that's why that's why I say kind of like a security, you know, security theater sort of thing, because at that point you've given the illusion that you're going to do something about it. You, you've you've provided, you know, you, someone can easily see, oh, I've got this bug bounty program. Here's the link. Here's the phone number. Here's how you get in touch with us to let us know. Um, you know, that that, you know, you 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 found a bug. But we, we we don't really have a process in place. We don't have a plan in place for how to deal with it, though. Yeah, that's that's exactly the problem. You know, the most organizations that are, you know, successfully convinced by a bug bounty platform to start a bug bounty before they really have a security team in place, they've basically been sold the idea that bug bounty platforms provide control. And it's control of the process, control of the hackers, you know, control of the scope that, you know, that is allowed and everything. And it's this illusion of control because if you don't have those back end um, people, process and technology to digest the incoming bugs, you know, think of it like a digestive system. If you have no digestive system, you can eat all the bugs you want, but they're not going anywhere good. Right. <laughs> and um and and I think that, you know, it's been a rude awakening for a lot of organizations that were told they could, quote unquote, outsource this problem where they've made no internal investments in, you know, how do they handle the bugs when they come in? And what we're seeing is, you know, that kind of illusion can hold for a small period of time, relatively small. But we see the cracks start, you know, really showing and bug bounty hunters, you know, rejecting programs that, you know, their bugs go into a black hole and aren't, you know, responded to, or their bugs go into a black hole and are never fixed, even if the payouts happen. A lot of security researchers are like, yeah, but this bug is still there. I got paid, but I actually wanted to see the bug fixed, you know? So, um, so I think that, yeah, I, I think the next generation of implementations of these programs need to take into account the end-to-end -end servicing of these bugs. It has definitely been proven that the outsourced, crowdsourced model of just handling the incoming reports and doing that level of triage 
that's completely insufficient for a good security outcome. Is it so? Uh, yeah, I've I've not ever found a bug to report, so I don't know how the how the systems work. But are there companies? Are there systems where like you know, like you mentioned with Clubhouse, they wanted you to sign the NDA or whatever? Where if I go to you and I say, hey, I found this bug that they pay you for it because they have a bug bounty program. So, so now you, you've been paid for finding it. Um, but that a part of accepting that money is undermining coordinated disclosure. Like, are you, are you then under NDA to not disclose it? That's correct. And actually the bug bounty platforms we've seen uh, where if something is in a private program, um, you know, you've accepted the terms and conditions of joining that private program, meaning you won't even talk about the existence of the private program, right? It's like Fight Club now, and then uh, Bug Club, you know, and um, and then further, even if something you submit is closed and said, and you're told that it's not a bug, that they're not going to fix it, you're still bound by that non-disclosure agreement on the platform to not say anything about the bug. Now, I think that's you know bad for security outcomes for users, for sure, but it's definitely bad for, for security researchers as well, because you know, unlike me who has a, a, a company that I run, that is, that is what produces my income, I'm not reliant on bug bounty platform sourced income. So the lever that the platforms use with researchers who are frustrated with programs is if you don't comply with program X's rules, even if they're frustrating you and not fixing things or paying you out and not fixing them or closing the cases as not, you know, not applicable or out of scope, whatever it is, whatever complaint you have, if you complain publicly, we will kick you off the platform and deny you access to all the bug bounty programs. So they use their, you know, their, the fact that they are the source of, you know, additional income for these bug bounty hunters as a way to threaten them, um, you know, with loss of income, which is ironic considering none of the bug bounty hunters are their employees. You know, they're, they're caught in this gig economy labor abuse cycle started, you know, in full force by Lyft and Uber and all of those companies, uh, you know, gig economy companies. And they're doing the same thing, but to security workers. And I'm quite concerned about that, you know, trend making its way into the technology worker space. Yeah. Well, and and honestly, until like two minutes ago, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But but it it makes sense, you know. So 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 basically, by you know, if I have a a a company, uh, by deciding to uh, sign on with one of these with one of the uh, bug bounty platforms, it's not so much that I. I mean, I'm not saying everyone that does this is is it falls under this into this category, but. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm at all interested in fixing anything. It simply means that I now have a front end that allows me to basically go back to the way things were, and where instead of instead of threatening you with legal action, I'm just buying your silence with an NDA. Yep, pretty much. And the NDA is enforced for you by this third party that controls a marketplace for for you know several other programs. So it really does end up you know serving the the goal of silencing researchers in the end and it serves uh, the goal of keeping vulnerabilities um, out of the public eye whether they're fixed or not and that is counter to good security outcomes that is that is why you know um, my company basically when when an organization comes to us and says 
we want to start a bug bounty program. Can Luta Security help us do it? The first question I ask them before charging them a dime is, what are you doing right now in terms of dealing with uh, any incoming vulnerability reports? Um, and if the answer is, we don't have any incoming vulnerable reports because we've never received a bug report from the public, we have no you know, no program in place, but we do want to start a bug bounty immediately. I say, no, you don't. You actually do not want to start a bug bounty immediately. And um, in, instead, you want to do a maturity model assessment, which will analyze your internal capabilities and figure out where are your gaps in people, process, and technology, um, because you've never, you know, you've never uh, sent water down the pipes, so to speak, right? You've never actually you know, seeing where where all of the problems are in your internal processes. And it would be a bad, bad experience for you to start with a bug bounty program. And often, you know, these these potential customers are really sad and they say, well, it took us this long to get internal approval to get a bug bounty program. And now we're committed to doing a bug bounty program. So we can't change course. And I'm like, well, you better find a way to change course to something that is sustainable or you will check the box and say, yep, we launched a bug bounty program, but, you know, in very little time without the internal plumbing and mechanisms to handle it, you're going to, you're, you're probably going to have, uh, you know, an, an uncoordinated disclosure. Um, and even worse, you're going to start being word of mouth um, shared among researchers as this is a bad bug bounty program. Don't bother wasting time looking for bugs there. Or if you do find bugs, don't bother reporting them. Find a different market, drop them a zero day anonymously, whatever it is. But, you know, word gets around. And, you know, I think a, a case in point was that, you know, Zoom was was a client of Luta Securities, um, just checking up on their internal processes when the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, Zoom was actually using both of the major bug bounty platforms um, at the time. And, and I believe they still are using both of them. But they couldn't deal with the surge of cases that came in because of their popularity surge. Right. So it wasn't their fault. It just suddenly they got, you know, exponentially more popular. And then suddenly they, their bug bounty programs got exponentially more popular at the same time. Um, but the fact of the matter was the bug bounty platforms themselves offered zero help to, you know, the internal workings. So that was where Luta Security came in and we had to, you know, go in and help them reduce, you know, we basically helped flatten the curve of their surge of cases, right? Just much like uh, dealing in pandemic terms. Um, but that was all based on, you know, shoring up their internal processes, helping them, you know, train their their folks internally to be much more efficient with the cases that were coming in. Um, and that was something that was beyond the scope of any of the bug bounty platforms. They were perfectly happy to just kind of, you know, enjoy the increased volume and increased revenue um, that was the result of the, the surge of bugs. Well, it's funny. So, so I, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, Plan on having a uh, you know anti-bug bounty platform uh, agenda per se, but um, it occurs to me that th there's also a little bit of predatory behavior in that if I go to a company, so now I'm the bug bounty platform, and I go to a company that is not doesn't doesn't have the pieces in place to to properly address bug bounties. Maybe I even secretly tell them you know wink wink nudge nudge uh, you know behind closed doors. Hey, you know what? Once we get these people to sign off on the NDA and we pay them their money, you know what you do with the bugs—that's your—that's your problem. I mean, you, you you can you can fix them or don't fix them. We don't care. But 
by by starting the bug bounty program, they are also kind of putting a bullseye on themselves to an extent. They're they're inviting people to to look for to look for flaws. Now the flaws are there. They're, I mean, they're either there or they're not. So like you know nobody's nobody's injecting vulnerabilities for them, but you know now you've got this bug bounty platform. You know, and and you're 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 going public saying, hey, we have a bug bounty program. So you're asking people to to come find those flaws, and spending money, uh, to to pay those people off, or you know, or or pay you know how again I don't want to paint it like everyone is doing it uh, shady, um, but you're 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 paying money for these bugs that you're not prepared to to actually deal with, that in the absence of the bug bounty program, you know, maybe you you wouldn't be spending that money. Yeah, I mean that's that's you know typical of of how things go. But I think you know for for us and what we tell organizations is that you should be spending that money, but probably not on bug bounties. If if you you know if you have a very very um, untested set of technologies, going to as your you know your go to should not be bug bounty or vuln disclosure program because if you think about it you know they're the same thing a bug bounty and a vuln disclosure program are the exact same thing it's just one of them comes with cash rewards but from a process perspective you can't digest bugs you know uh without a you know internal people process and technology so it applies to both vuln disclosure programs and bug bounty programs um but you know i think to your point you know the uh the platforms benefit the more bugs you have, right? Because then it looks like, look, uh, look at all this value, you know, that we brought you by uh, inviting these researchers to take a look at your technology. Well, you know, that the the lower hanging fruit there is, the more low low hanging fruit bugs there are, the more bug reports you're going to get and the more duplicates you're going to get because low hanging fruit by definition can be found more easily by common tools and techniques. So what I tell organizations is spot the low hanging fruit yourself. Don't spend that money. Don't spend low hanging fruit discovery money on bug bounties. That is the least efficient way for you to find that low hanging fruit. And, um, you know, when we go in, if they have missing processes and they aren't, you know, training their developers, you know, properly, we often say, you know, look, reallocate some of what you had set aside for bug bounty on some of these preventative measures, because that's more efficient. It's more cost effective um, if you don't write the bugs in the first place. And then, you know, finally, if you do want third party eyeballs who will give you unlimited time to fix things. There is a service for that, and it's a well-established service. It's called professional penetration testing. And I think the uh, bug bounty platforms would always argue, saying, well, it's luck of the draw of who you get for a pen test, you know, and it's limited time, whereas this is ongoing testing, crowdsourced, many eyeballs, all of that stuff. That does not really equate to better security. If if we got better security just by having many eyeballs available to look at things, all open source software would be flawless right now. You know what I mean? It really takes guided direction and possibly possibly incentives um, to organize the right kinds of eyeballs who have the capability and uh, training to find bugs in your particular technology. And if anybody could find them with common tools and techniques, then that anybody better be you instead of them. 
Right. Um, all right. Well, so in general, you know, like what, you know, I know you, like you already have alluded to, um, you know, you've been very involved with, uh, you know, authoring and, and editing, uh, the ISO standards. You were involved with, you know, setting up these programs, you know, with like Microsoft and, and the, and the, and the Pentagon and things like that. Um, do you feel like there, there have been improvements? Do you think, I mean, are, are we heading in the right direction or do you think that, you know, that having companies that are out there, you know, selling, selling the bug bounty platforms is kind of regressing us to, to kind of the way things used to be? Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, I will say that things have improved in, um, you know, more organizations and governments embracing hackers. That is a definite, definite improvement. And in no small part due to the presence of the bug bounty companies um, making that, you know, normalized, right? So I absolutely think that's been one big positive change. But, you know, by that same token, the business model of the bug bounty platforms as they exist today is exploitative. It's exploitative of the workers that they are misclassifying, you know, and yet they're very strictly directing their work and payments and all of that stuff, all the things that employers do, um, they are doing to, to the researchers. Um, and in fact, it's a worse gig economy job than almost any of the rest of them that you think of as gig economy jobs. Like for example, you know, Instacart, Uber, Lyft, you're going to, you know, if you're, if you're a worker for one of them, Yes, you're an independent contractor, but if you accept a gig, you will get paid for it. Whereas the bug bounty platforms, if you accept an invitation to a bug bounty program, um, either just by you know submitting something through the regular platform or, or through the you know platform uh, of a public bug bounty or a private bug bounty, either way, um, what you're doing is the equivalent of being like an Uber driver who takes a passenger drives to the airport with them, spends the money, spends the time, spends the gas, has to pay for the insurance of their own you know, vehicle and all of that stuff, and then arrives at the airport only to find that they didn't get paid because they weren't the first one to arrive at the airport. And that's really the trick of bug bounties and how you know the way that they're implemented with the platforms today is exploitative of the workers. And frankly, um, I also think that it's exploiting the customers as well, because the customers are getting an illusion of security. Um, we've seen breach reports get closed as out of scope by bug bounty providers. This happened publicly with the Capital One breach, where literally somebody was saying, there's a bunch of your customer data and it's over here, here's the link to it. I wasn't the one who got it, but I know it's there. And here is the data dump from your customers. Literally, Bug Bounty Platform closed that report as out of scope because it wasn't reporting a specific security hole. It was reporting a breach. So we just have all of these like unintended consequences as a result of the business model enforced by these Bug Bounty Platforms. So that's where I see huge room for improvement. Even though we've had overall acceptance of hackers and our work in vulnerable disclosure much more broadly accepted as a result of these um, companies existing, uh, we still have that you know pretty big and sharp edge of the double-edged sword to deal with. Right, and 
you know, so like in, in, in your situation, you know, again, you, you have your own company, you, you're, you're already focused on, on these issues. And so you, you're not, you're not dependent on, uh, reporting, uh, bugs as, as your, your primary source of revenue. You know, you're, you're not necessarily participating in this gig economy. Are you aware of anyone uh, of other, uh, security researchers, other hackers who find bugs who then on on like a moral or ethical ground refuse to accept the NDA and refuse to go through a platform like that? Absolutely. I mean, all of Google Project Zero refuses to report through bug bounty platforms. Um, they, you know, they, they will try and find an email address and use email. And even if they submit the report through the platform, they usually include a disclaimer in the report saying, uh, I'm just using this this ticketing system that you required me to, but I do not accept the terms and conditions of of you know disclosure or non-disclosure of this platform. Um, so Google Project Zero team refuses bug bounty platform terms um, and any non-disclosure terms that an organization might require of them to report. Um, same thing with many other um, highly respected research team, the Talos team out of Cisco, same thing. And here's the, here's the funny part. If bug bounty platforms try to vilify researchers for holding disclosure deadlines and sticking to them, they honestly should take a look at vuln disclosure history because CERTCC, the Coordination Center of the United States, has had a 45-day vulnerability disclosure deadline for over a decade. And they do impose it on uh, vendors that are non-responsive or are kind of giving them the runaround because it is in the public interest. It is for the public good to disclose vulnerabilities and technical details of the vulnerabilities in order to have people protect themselves. And that's especially if the vendor hasn't fixed it in a timely manner. So anybody who's got a problem with uh, dropping O'Day after a, after a deadline should take that up with the United States government. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, so only, only semi-related from the standpoint of it's the, it's the government, but um, following the Colonial Pipeline uh, ransomware attack, there was a story that said uh, – that the, the TSA was now going to require uh, pipeline companies to report when there's a cybersecurity incident, and uh, and I, I talked about this on a, on a on a previous episode a couple episodes ago. But I was like, my my first thought was, why does TSA have any jurisdiction over this? <laughs> I thought they just did security theater at airports. My second thought was. Why is this new? Like, why, 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 why don't we already have a requirement that a cybersecurity incident against a, an oil pipeline be reported? Like, why? It's 2021. Why did they just think of this? I think it it's probably has a lot to do with, um, you know, private companies, not just in critical infrastructure, but but all private companies uh, who are aware of any of these efforts to require incident reporting. They've been very successfully lobbying against it because, you know, they're worried about liability. And I know that, you know, in consultation with the with legislators, when they've said, you know, what would increase the information sharing, the public-private partnerships, like what would get companies to share with us, you know, whether it's an incident 
or, you know, any anything at all, you know, in, in terms of cybersecurity, the answer has always been they need some sort of liability protection for doing so. So I think that that is why they, they haven't uh, made a lot of headway in that area before now. And I think now with ransomware, you know, really putting an exclamation point at the end of the, the sentence of you must maintain your security hygiene. Um, I think that ransomware is providing the impetus to come to some sort of mutually uh, sustainable agreement. And um, I think everyone would agree that uh, requiring incident reporting without providing some sort of liability protection um, will go nowhere. So I think that they need to work on that problem. Yeah. Well, not not to take away from the entire conversation about bugs and reporting bugs and, and all of those things, but... When I look at some of these major incidents, it's like that that almost seems like the 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 least of our problems. I mean, you know the 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 original vector for the solar winds attack was you know a weak password. Um, and the original vector for colonial pipeline was apparently you know a, a, a un, unmonitored VPN uh, connection. Um, you know, so it's like while while, there's certainly, you know, it's it is certainly very important, and and there's a lot of value in finding and fixing vulnerabilities. Um, it seems like we can find and fix vulnerabilities all day, and yet basic stupidity and human error will still <laughs> get us in the end. Well, and I think that you know having having the ability to detect when a breach occurs, you know, so. Um, speed of detection, speed of containment, speed of response. I think those things, even in the face of human error, those systems being in place would have at least, um, you know, contained the damage or limited it. Um, you know, I think for solar winds, for example, the fact that it wasn't discovered even by Mandiant, who um, who did, you know, they did discover it eventually, but the, uh, when they looked back, you know, at that threat actor of when, when they gained access initially, it was still a couple of months before they detected anything. And these are the folks that, you know, people call in to right. shore up their detection. So I think that, you know, even with the best of the best, you're going to get, um, you're going to get very stealthy adversaries who will try their best to not be detected, um, because as soon as they are, you know, the, the, the game is up. And I think that, you know, Mandiant was in a unique position in that it specializes in doing this kind of work for its customers. And it was well set up to deal with it. But even it, you know, couldn't, couldn't achieve, you know, perfect detection in real time of these, uh, you know, of these threat actors. And it was, you know, a save by their multi-factor authentication and their protocols for checking up with workers who register new devices that tipped them off that there was an intruder at all. You know, and it was, yeah, they were running Duo um, as their multi-factor authentication and the attacker registered a new phone um, to receive, uh, to, to uh, you know, be a another uh, factor of authentication and their protocols internally um, had them check with the employee and said, nope, I didn't register a new phone and boom, that was how they detected um, the adversary. So. To your question, I think we've got a long way to go for everyone to be at mandiant levels of, of internal security. But yeah. I do think that the executive order, including, you know, pushing for multi-factor authentication um, 
access to all you know important assets in the federal government, that is absolutely the right thing to do to at least be able to contain some things by detecting them early. Right. Well, and right, and to to your point about uh, you know quicker, faster detection um, and and faster response. Uh, EDR is also a big part part of the executive order and the the you know push from the government, um, and the way that ransomware has evolved, it becomes even more important because uh, you know the early you know ransomware 1.0 was just another malware variant, and so it executed, it encrypted your stuff, and you had to pay the ransom. Well, now they've moved on to this double extortion model where their first they're first getting inside your network. And so you have this opportunity to detect them and stop them before they get to the actual encryption part. If, if you, if you have the right tools in place. No, that's absolutely correct. And you know, the other part, as you know, is um, exfiltrating all that data to be able to do a, you know, a release of it. Um, so that's another way that, that they've been, <clears throat> they've been blackmailing their customers right. and extorting their customers is saying, you know, pay us the ransom to decrypt your data. And they, you know, if they pay, then it's like, great, now pay us not to disclose your data because we've got copies of it and we're going to release it to the public. So yeah, for sure. Right. Well, and the thing is with that, on the one hand, it's, it's more insidious. It means that you you backing up your network uh, doesn't save you. Uh, if they're going to publicly disclose your intellectual property or sell it to your competitor or whatever they're going to do with the, the data they've exfiltrated, um, it makes the ransomware more insidious because you you almost can't you 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 basically can't not pay the ransom at that point. However, it also it kind of gives some advantage, like I said, back to back to the victim that if you have the right tools in place, you now have a, a window of opportunity <laughs> to to find them and stop them before they exfiltrate that data. That's right, or at least before they exfiltrate all of it. <laughs> right. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to, uh, I, I guess, kind of wind down there. Is there. Is there anything else in particular? You know, any any question you wanted to address that I didn't ask? Uh, anything specific? you've got on the horizon or things going on uh, in, in general with Luda that you want to talk about? Sure. I mean, you know, with the um, with CISA's binding operational directive to have all federal agencies um, start a vuln disclosure program March 1st of this year, um, we're offering a whole bunch of different workshops to get people at least aware of what missing pieces of their process do they have. Um, so, you know, we've been uh, we've been working with customers on maturity modeling their internal systems and making sure that they're set up not just for what their case volume looks like today, but also, you know, in planning for the future. Because I think what we're seeing here with all these ransomware attacks, with increased focus on cybersecurity across federal and, you know, private industry, I think what we're seeing here is an uptick in all kinds of security spending. But what my my passion is, is making sure that people are spending their money and their time and their resources and security in the most efficient way possible, as opposed to just trying to tick off a bunch of compliance boxes or check off the box that they're running a bug bounty, but there's really nothing behind it. I call that bug bounty Botox, you know. So um, trying to make sure that organizations are growing in proportion to their um, to their responsibility not just in proportion to the perceived threats out there. And I think that um, 
you know, for, for me in my over 20 years of professional experience in the security industry and watching these kind of uh, trends emerge in not just attack and threats, but trends in security products and services and marketing, you know, and what what has been commercially successful versus what actually builds good security outcomes for organizations. I think we're ready for the next wave of, you know, next generation security um, consultancies and product companies that that are actively trying to match what the client needs, not just what you're selling at the time. And that's really where I I think the strengths of the next generation of security companies are going to come from. Okay. It, that is a, a a unique and interesting business model to only sell people what they need <laughs> and not what you're trying to sell. <laughs> well, wildly enough, uh, we as a bootstrap startup company with no VC dollars backing us are profitable, whereas the VC-backed bug bounty companies are not. So there you go. They're selling that one hammer to everyone's uh, perceived nail, and we are selling, you know, much more, um, you know, uh, solutions that conform to what where the customer is right now and where they need to go, and turns out that is a profitable business model after all. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time uh, to to join me. Uh, and uh, you know, like I said, I I I will not be at Black Hat, but uh, I, I you know, fingers crossed. I anticipate being at RSA next spring, so <laughs> maybe I'll see you there. Probably. I heard, um, you know, what was funny was there was a Twitter spaces, um, which is their answer to Clubhouse audio. There was a drop in conversation with uh, the U.S. Surgeon General. And I dropped in at the right time, right place. I got a question. I got to ask him a question directly. And I asked about when do you think the vaccines will be ready for under 12 year olds? And he said there's studies going on right now, clinical trials. He expects it no later than the end of this calendar year. So to your question, will I be at RSA next year? Well, the U.S. Surgeon General told me probably. So I will say probably. (laughs) Right. Well, we shall see. (laughs) Right on. Take care. Thanks. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast, but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, Please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.